Hi there, and welcome to SciCare, the podcast where we talk about science, self-care, and all things wellness. I'm Robin Laird, your host, and as usual, I hope I'm joining you on a walk right now. If not, I hope you get a chance to move outside at some point soon. Today we'll be talking about epigenetics. Perhaps you've already heard about epigenetics, perhaps not. It's become an increasingly popular topic in public media, but I read a lot of misinformation about what it actually is and how we can understand it in the context of our lives. It's complicated science and it can be really difficult to discern quality information from myths and hypes. So today we're actually going to be talking with a world-renowned epigeneticist who also happens to be my father, Dr. Peter W. Laird. This is the first of an interview series that we'll be doing here on SciCare. I'll be inviting different health and science experts to speak about their area of expertise so that you and I can learn together. Please let me know if there are any specific topics you'd like to hear about from an expert by sending me a message on Instagram at science.of.selfcare. I'm so excited. But back to today's episode. Before we dive into the actual interview, I want to introduce epigenetics in the way that I personally like to think about it. So if we understand our genetics as the study of our actual genes, the information encoded in the literal DNA strands that are in our cells, epigenetics can be understood as the study of how our genes are labeled and packaged. Sometimes genes are literally wrapped so tightly that they cannot be accessed by our proteins, and other times genes are more unraveled and exposed in order to be expressed in our body. It's very fascinating, but enough from me, let's get into this interview. Thank you for joining us, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me. So would you start us off by giving us a broad and colloquial background on epigenetics, what it is? Sure, I'd be happy to. And one of the easiest ways to understand epigenetics is actually to go back to our beginnings. So all of us started off as a single fertilized egg uh, when a sperm and an egg cell came together and uh, started to divide into two cells, four, eight, into your whole body now. The amazing thing is that with each cell division, every time these cells divide, you get almost perfect replicate, a copy. And that's why in a crime scene, if you leave any part of your body behind, you get the complete genetic code of who you are left behind because of all, all of our cells have exactly the same genetic instructions for how to make your body, what color eyes you have, hair, etc. All of our cells are identical genetically, but you have very different body parts and your muscle cells, the cells that make up the muscles are very different than your liver and very different than your skin and very different than your hair. And so how is it that exactly the same genetic instructions can give rise to so many different types of tissues and cells? And the trick there is that among the uh, tens of thousands of genes that we have, only a specific subset is used in a particular cell type. So for example, in your muscle cells, you don't need to use the genes that are needed to make up your brain neurons, for example, and the proteins in the neurons. And in your neurons, you don't need the enzymes that you need to produce in your liver. So um, by taking different parts of your genetic instructions and turning them on in different cells, you can get very different results and very different behavior of the cells. And the way that that's organized is um, complicated and, and uses proteins that help to regulate gene activity called transcription factors. But it also uses a, a, a mechanism 
of packaging the DNA into exactly. coils and marking them up with little chemical tags to indicate whether some genes should be turned on or not in a particular cell type. And that packaging and that marking and that regulating of how the DNA is actually used, that's really what scientists understand epigenetics to be. So it's information that influences how a cell behaves and how it looks, but it's not genetically encoded since all of our genetics is the same in all of our cells, but it's how that genetic information is used, so whether it's active or not, whether it's being read and turned into RNA and protein. In the popular media, sometimes epigenetics is understood to mean different things, uh, how diet or environment influences our phenotype, our, how, how we look and feel and um, how healthy we are. But that's sort of a, an indirect consequence uh, of the actual mechanism of the uh, gene activity and packaging. We're in the early stages of understanding the relationship between the packaging of the genes and the organization and the regulation and the things that we observe in our bodies, like how good our skin looks or how we feel or uh, whether uh, we're depressed or not, all these things, that that relationship is still um, very nebulous and we're, we're trying to make all those links. Yeah, that's a great point that there's a lot still unknown in how epigenetics connects to lifestyle and behavior. But are there any sort of broader themes that we see that these sorts of behaviors or lifestyle trends tend to be good for our epigenetic makeup or our cancer risk? Or are there any things that you've noticed in your research that seem to come up more and more? Well, we approach this problem from multiple different angles. And so I approach it from the cellular molecular angle, trying to understand how these bits and pieces work together to regulate the activity of genes. But other scientists are looking at how certain behaviors, diet, exercise, etc., influence the risk of cancer, epidemiologists, for example. And in the past decade or two, epidemiologists have started to work with molecular biologists like myself in mm -hmm. fields such as molecular epidemiology, where we try to tie the diets or the behaviors together with our understanding of genetics and molecular mechanisms and metabolism to try to see whether we can understand or explain why certain dietary nutritional components or behaviors influence uh, cancer risk, heart disease, and things like that. But that's still very much in its infancy, and there are a lot of unknowns and a lot of mechanisms that we don't understand. But what you should sort of imagine this big nebulous problem um, being approached from different angles by different areas of expertise, yeah. and we sort of merge once in a while and meet each other in the middle, and that's where uh, new insights uh, arise. In terms of epigenetics, one clear relationship is the relationship between one of the major tags used in epigenetics, which are so-called methyl groups, mm -hmm. and what we need in our diet to make sure that we can produce enough of these methyl groups um, to make them available to put onto proteins and DNA. And there's a metabolism or there's a metabolic pathway that is needed to, to create these methyl donors. And the dietary components that help with this are things like folate, methionine is another source, and you sometimes hear about S-adenosylmethionine or SAMe as it's sometimes called. That is very dependent upon folate uh, and the, the folate pathway to regenerate and how you get folate, among other things, is in leafy greens, vegetables. Is this why folate is so important for pregnant women since there's so much growth and mm -hmm. DNA replication going yeah. on and methylation? Is that 
for so us the these methyl groups are used for a lot of different things mm -hmm. and um, some of it's used for epigenetics some of it is uh, used to produce one of the building blocks of DNA thymine right. right. and so the folate needed in pregnancy may be primarily to make sure that we can make enough DNA just to make enough copies the thymine but part of it may also be epigenetics and with a lot of these things we don't know fully yet to what extent epigenetics plays a role there's some cases where we have a clear-cut mechanism there's a a mouse model that's used experimentally that has a yellow coat color, yellow to brown, depending on the levels mm -hmm. of folate in its diet or mm -hmm. the, the methyl group donors. And we know exactly mechanistically how mm -hmm. that works. There's a, a gene that is that influences coat color that, where its activity is dependent on how much folate uh, there is in this particular mutant. One of the interesting things that has emerged from some of that science with mouse models is that we can see transgenerational effects of diet. And so if you give a mouse a diet, a pregnant female, you can see the effects of that diet on the coat color of the offspring of that mice for several generations. There's some hints and indications that in human populations are similar transgenerational phenomena going on, but we're not yet at the stage where we understand the exact molecular mechanism. So at mm -hmm. this point, we think that there's probably a role for transgenerational epigenetics in humans, but we don't have the hardcore scientific evidence. And yeah. so there's a lot of speculation that you read in the literature, sometimes in the, in the press or online, about a potential mechanism for how what you eat for breakfast may influence uh, the happiness of your grandchildren or something like that. And, yeah. and so some of that is exaggerated, but um, there, there are going to be such effects. But there, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that that's the major impact of epigenetics. The major impact of epigenetics is probably how diet influences the long-term stability and health of cells in our body uh, over decades. Mm -hmm. uh, epigenetics, you can sort of see as a molecular memory that spans long time periods that is added on top of our genetic code. I think there's also something interesting because it is a memory and it is perhaps transgenerational, but it's also not permanent and is changing. And a lot of our cells are remethylated every time during replication. So I think that is also a very interesting way in which the choices we're making in our everyday lives could very much impact our bodies on cellular and genetic levels. Uh, but beyond epigenetics, I know that you've been in cancer research for several decades, so perhaps beyond the molecular mechanisms, are there any other trends that you've seen between disease development and lifestyles and behaviors, oh, perhaps sure. in cancer? Yeah, no, it's very clear that how we lead our lives has a huge impact on cancer risk and also cardiovascular risk, so also a major killer. So those two are, are the major sources of death for people in the Western world who live beyond uh, many of the accidents and dangers that happen in childhood diseases than uh, the chronic diseases that we usually die from are cardiovascular disease and uh, uh, cerebral cardiovascular disease as well as cancer. And what we've learned is uh, that there are certain, for example, dietary behaviors and, and components that are very beneficial and others that are somewhat harmful. In terms of cancer, I would say clearly 
the biggest impact that you can have is to reduce your exposure to uh, the major carcinogens in tobacco smoke. So that's one easy way. If you can quit smoking, yeah. that's already a big way in which you can uh, reduce uh, your risk of cancer. Most of that is, yeah. is genetic, probably. Genetic? Well, I'd like to touch upon that because many people are unclear on the idea of if I quit smoking now, will my body be able to repair itself? Have I already done too much damage? Is there any use? From your research, does it seem like your body can begin to repair itself and then again decrease the risk? Or is it sort of a once you've damaged that DNA, it's... Well, I would say it's always good to stop smoking at any point. And the way you should sort of see it is you continue to accumulate damage mm -hmm. as you continue to smoke. And as soon as you yeah. stop smoking, you stop adding to that accumulated damage. Yeah. And there is some evidence for some reduction of risk over time compared to if you, certainly if you yeah. compare to if you were to continue smoking, it, it gets a lot better. So it may never go back to the point as if you had never smoked. Yeah. But you can certainly that slow down the the clock of accumulated damage, yeah. and, and uh, there's always a good case to be made for yeah. stopping smoking. Well, cancer is fundamentally a genetic disease, so it's it's a bit of a lottery. You know, I've also heard people say, "Well, my grandfather smoked his whole life; he never mm -hmm. got cancer." It's a bit of a genetic lottery, and with any sort of carcinogen that's working on the genetic or epigenetic level, it's just matter of time if there's enough mistakes that sort of line sure. up to cause a tumor and limiting that chance is yeah is it's, it's literally helpful. like a lottery and and every time you smoke you you buy some lottery tickets for death and uh, <laughs> if you enjoy playing the lottery and, and want to die early then certainly uh, smoking is one way to get okay, there okay so no smoking uh, are some no other smoking common uh, carcinogens yeah so so sunlight causes some some damage um for some types of skin cancer, but uh, compared to smoking, it's a lot smaller number of people that die as a consequence of, uh, of sunlight uh, damage. But you should see sunlight and smoking as sources of genetic damage to your DNA uh, that changes the actual code, mm -hmm. the genetic code. But there's also epigenetic mechanisms mm -hmm. that act on that or, or work together with uh, and can counteract some of the damage that you accumulate because yeah. You know, you can say, well, I'm going to stop smoking, I'm going to wear sunscreen, but you're still going to get mutations in your DNA just spontaneously as well. And not all cells that get a particular type of genetic damage will immediately start to turn into a cancer cell. So there's some built-in resistance uh, among cells depending on epigenetic mechanisms as well. So or, do we know a bit about how we might be able to promote these protective epigenetic mechanisms? Well, what we know... We don't know all of the mechanisms, mm. and uh, we you have to be careful about trying to sort of micromanage that yeah, at a detailed sure. level if you don't understand it, because, sure. for example, reactive oxygen species um, can cause problems and damage in some situations, but are also used by the cellular defenses to kill yeah, cells uh, in other situations as well. So we don't have such a full understanding yet that we can start to tweak that in a very precise way. But what we do see is that certain foods influence cancer risk at a sort of macro level. And so without understanding the mechanisms, we know that particularly vegetables and fruits that have a lot of active antioxidants in them and a variety of, of uh, compounds that are different in each type of vegetable. So eating a diverse array of brightly colored fresh uh, fruits and vegetables is, yeah. is probably one of the 
key factors in maintaining a healthy diet. There's some evidence that eating a a diet high in animal protein and or fat uh, increases the risk of certain types of cancer and possibly also cardiovascular disease. And I know that this is a a controversial area for a lot of people, but most consistently that's what Mm -hmm. the data shows that People eat a high meat diet tend to have higher rates of of certain types of cancer and cardiovascular disease. It's interesting that you touched upon the animal fats and proteins. Um, I know there are certain communities that are now touting this idea that those fats and proteins are only unhealthy in the context of eating higher amounts of carbohydrates and refined carbohydrates. And that actually, if those are limited, then the processing of those fats is different. Do you think that there's some truth to this or that people should just not be as swayed by these overly restrictive ways of eating and should just more generally eat in balance? Well, it's really hard to say because number, epidemiology yeah. is also, there's so many confounders in every epidemiological study. That's why you shouldn't uh, hang your hat on one particular study. You should really look at the whole yeah. body of work and evidence that is out there. There are literally thousands and thousands of studies that have been done. And the general picture that emerges, regardless of all the fine details, is um, diets high in fresh fruit or at least uh, unprocessed fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. low in animal protein yeah. and particularly saturated fat, uh, low in processed carbohydrates and sugars. Those are all easy things to incorporate yeah. in your diet that almost universally pan out to be uh, yeah. healthy for you. So uh, rather than getting into the exact balance yeah. of carbs and, and protein, yeah. etc., just if you stick to mostly fruits things. and vegetables, unprocessed, relatively low intake of animal meat, uh, so animal protein and, and fats, and, and limit your, your sugars and processed carbohydrates, and try to also get a healthy dose of good fats. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about fats are bad. Uh, there are lots of good fats. And so That's there's great. <laughs> <laughs> particularly yeah, monounsaturated fats, mm-hmm. omega-3 fatty acids, mm-hmm. um, so avocado oil, yeah. olive oil, salmon. So we've been talking a lot about epigenetics and cancer risk, but how do we actually know that these two things are connected? That's an excellent question, and I didn't know the answer to that either and was skeptical about epigenetics and back when I started working with DNA methylation in the early 90s, and no one really thought that epigenetics was important in cancer. It had been observed that there were some changes to this packaging and the marking, uh, particularly a type of epigenetic tag called DNA methylation Mm -hmm. um, in human tumors, but everyone thought it was just sort of a a side effect, a byproduct. It wasn't really instrumental to causing the cancer, and so that was the state in the field in the early 90s, and um, I was a postdoctoral fellow at uh, the Whitehead Institute um, associated with MIT in uh, Massachusetts, and I did an experiment in Rudolf Janisch's lab mm-hmm. where we um, didn't we did an experiment that sort of turned things around. So up until then, people had been taking human cancer tissue and showing that there were changes in epigenetic packaging. And Laurie Jackson Gresby and I, a colleague, decided to turn things around and take a model of cancer, engineer changes to the DNA methylation, and ask whether that impacted cancer risk or the Mm. number of of tumors. Mm. And surprisingly, we found that uh, we could almost completely prevent polyps from developing if we lowered the amount of DNA methylation 
That actually was the first demonstration that an epigenetic mechanism could have a major impact mm -hmm. on cancer. And since then, we've gone on to, and we and many other investigators around the world have looked at how epigenetics influences uh, cancer. And even now, many years later, we don't fully understand exactly what the mechanism is, but we're mm -hmm. continuing to work on that. I was privileged to participate in a, a very large uh, national project called the Cancer Genome Atlas, in which we uh, produced DNA methylation data for over 10,000 uh, primary human cancers and collaborated with scientists around the country and around the world to profile the genomes and the, the RNA of all of these different tumors and put all this information together to make it available to the public as an atlas, and that's available online. If you Google TCGA, you can go and, and find the data um, that, that was generated so if we had to boil this whole complicated topic of epigenetics and cancer down into three tips for how people might be able to live in the most cancer-limiting way, what are three things that you would just really suggest for every single human to practice? Well, I actually have to go back then to the epidemiology because the, the experiments we do on the mechanisms, mm -hmm. the epigenetic mechanisms, are trying to understand how... Too far removed. Well, it's trying to understand how these lifestyle factors may ultimately influence cancer risk, mm -hmm. but we haven't made all the links in yeah, between those steps true, yet. True. But quitting smoking, lots of exercise, and a healthy diet of fruits and vegetables, and and healthy oils, those three things are, are really key. <laughs> I'm and, sure we've heard it and, all before, yeah. but it's good to hear it from a scientist. Himself. But it's also, you know, we would have known that without any epigenetics research just from the epidemiology, but now in the next decade or two, what you'll see is trying to get at the molecular mechanisms of how those three factors specifically influence specific types of cancer risk. And some of that is going to certainly be epigenetic in nature, as suggested also by the experiments that we did. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was really interesting. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right, welcome back. If you made it this far, I'm impressed with your curiosity and hope you learned something new about epigenetics. I'll link some papers by Dr. Laird down below for anyone who wants to go into a major deep dive. Again, if there are topics you'd love to get an expert's take on, please connect with me on Instagram at science.of.selfcare. I'll also work on getting an email address set up for any listeners who don't have Instagram. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in. Stay positive, stay healthy, and until next time, friends.